Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Killer Jeans Stripped Down, where we talk about everything true crime and then some. You'll hear about the cases that are close to us and go behind the scenes of true crime reporting. We'll also talk about case updates and breaking news, as well as speak with some of our friends and colleagues in the world of true crime. Now, we're going to be sharing things we've never been able to talk about because certainly inappropriate to post online. But this is the platform that we can finally share it. What really happens when gathering true crime stories. So let's get to it. Welcome to another episode of Killer Jeans Stripped Down. This week, we are being joined by threat management and safety expert Spencer Corson. He's got a new book out, uh, the best-selling book, The Safety Trap. Spencer, welcome. Ellie, Melissa, pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. What is The Safety Trap, Spencer? The Safety Trap is a phrase I coined a few years ago to help my clients better understand why sometimes feeling safe is the most dangerous thing we do. Because a lot of people have a tendency to conflate safety with security as if they mean the same thing. But safety is really just a feeling, whereas security is a state of being. And in order for us to truly be protected, both of those things must be in Congress with one another in order for us to have that that certainty that we all crave in our everyday lives. So if you think about it in terms of like an umbrella where the canopy overhead that's protecting you from, from the falling rain and is keeping you dry is the security and being underneath that canopy is safety. And when those two things are working as expected, we are protected. But sometimes we have this false expectation that that umbrella that works effectively in a in a light drizzle or a moderate rain will work just as effectively in a hurricane. And then we walk outside our door, we open up the umbrella, it inverts, it blows away. We're standing there soaking wet and we're like, Hey, how did this happen? This isn't supposed to happen to me. What did I do wrong? This has worked a million times in the past. And it's all because of either we were overconfident or our expectation was wrong. And so the book kind of goes through about 15 or 16 of these safety traps everything from avoidance to overconfidence to false expectation to false authority to overprotecting our children into oversharing on social media. And then I use real world anecdotes that happened to my clients to show what happened, how it was allowed to happen. And then I provide five protective strategies to keep those bad things from ever happening to you. Was there a reoccurring top instance that kept revealing itself as the number one mistake? Being too polite. Being too polite is one of the variables that unfortunately allows so many of us to negotiate against our own self-interest because our unwillingness to offend another sometimes gets in the way of our willingness to defend ourselves. And while being polite is a courtesy, protecting ourselves is a priority. And sometimes we just kind of really need to take that holistic big picture view and kind of treat our everyday life more like a chess match than, than a checkers board. That makes sense. I've been in that scenario a few times, but one that stands out, I was a local newscaster 
in a small town in Texas and you're used to when you're on that platform in a small town, obviously people are going to recognize you. They wake up to you every day. And so I had this really creepy looking guy following me in the grocery store and I thought, oh, he's probably just a fan. And then I let him get really close and keep following me instead of what my instincts were, which was to, you know, turn around and say, you know, what do you want? What are you doing? Can I help you with something in the grocery store? I let him follow me to the parking lot. And that's when he did do an attempted, you know, attack. And it was my biggest regret because I knew differently. My gut told me differently. All the signs were being alerted, but it was also 10 in the morning in broad daylight. And so I thought, I'm safe. There's witnesses. But when he was doing that, no one ran over to help. I don't even know that they even saw or noticed, you know, so it, it was just, you're right. You can never really let your guard down and ignore common sense signs. And and I was being too nice. And that wasn't my well, instinctive yeah. nature in that situation. Normally I'd say, what are you doing? Why are you following me? You know? Right. No, you're, no, you're exactly right. And you also, you touched on a couple different things there because one is that we always, after something happened, can always look back and be like, Oh, the, here are those pre-incident indicators that, that warned me that something bad was about to happen. Because one of the things my global experience has proven like time and time and time again, is that when we don't expect bad things to happen, we simply fail to see the warning signs that something bad is about to happen. And staying safe is about training ourselves to, you know, see those, those warning signs, to heed them and to not negotiate against them because we don't want to be we, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to live in fear. I don't want to offend all of these people. Like I'm a good person. If I put good into the world, like good's going to come back to me. And unfortunately, that's just not how reality works. How reality works is if someone tells you they're going to hurt you, they're probably going to hurt you. They're not just saying that to get a rise out of you. And so there's different things that I kind of go through this in the book about the difference between people who pose a threat and people who express a threat. I I do a lot of work with uh, like threat assessment for public figures. And the person who goes on Twitter and says, I'm going to kill you, that's someone who is expressing a threat. But the person who says, you keep eating those peanut butter sandwiches, you're going to get fat, poses a threat. Because how do they know you're eating those peanut butter sandwiches? Because they are now communicating to you that they have some kind of insider information about your personal life that wasn't publicly accessible. So is that person your Uber driver? Was that person, you know, working in your house? Was that person the checkout person at the grocery store who notices that you're on some kind of a jiffy binge? And so anytime you can identify those, what what is known in threat management as leakage, where you can identify those warning signs before that bad thing happens, you're in a better position to, you know, if you don't deal with today's concerns, you're going to be forced to deal with tomorrow's crisis. And kind of to your point exactly, if you had just been not more disagreeable, just but had just been more willing to participate in your own protection and just confronted that person at the onset, hey, what, what are you doing? Can I help you? You know, you're immediately going to take away their anonymity and put that because now you're going to you're going to take the upper hand, right? Because they're looking for the, the best way to come at you. And if you immediately take that away from them, well, now they're on the, the defense. Spencer, is it assertiveness versus rudeness? There's a big difference between being assertive than being rude. Yes. And I also thought a hundred percent, but some people have a a discomfort with the word assertiveness. And so, you know, it's kind of like one of those things where 
people, when, when you talk about like situational awareness or, you know, people are like, well, I'm not Jason Bourne. I'm not James Bond. I don't have this like Tom Cruise and mission impossible, like tactical training. But another word for, for situational awareness is just mindfulness, just understanding what's going on in the world around you. And the more that you are just willing to, you know, engage in your everyday interactions. And I think there's, there's a couple of things here. One is that, Yes, you're being assertive in the way that you're living your life, but you are really what you're doing is you're taking control of the way you live your life and not allowing others to control how you live your life. And so if you just look at it from more of an empowerment perspective, rather than a, you know, you're looking to implement your will onto others, what you're really doing is just not allowing others to implement their will onto you. You want it to be an even exchange. You want it to be like a tennis match where it goes back and forth. You don't want it to be just like someone's like a dodgeball where they're just bombing you with balls that, you know, left and right. You're just trying to keep getting out of the way. And I think that, you know, just the more that we have the skill sets and what I really tried to do with this book was just show people, give them the tools they can use to live their everyday life the safest way possible. Because so often we're just not familiar with how to do certain things. And so we revert back to decisions which aren't necessarily the wrong decisions, but they just weren't the right decisions had we had all the information. And so what I really wanted this book to do was to just give people the protective strategies to ensure the certainty of safety for everyone involved. And Spencer, how did you become such an expert in this? You know, why people, why should they take your word for, for this and being mindfulness and what, what makes you such the threat management security expert? Well, you know, being a protector, and I, I kind of talk about this in the book, is is a craft that I have honed my entire life. When my, um, I remember being like five or six years old, my parents got divorced, and in my mind, it's like this revolving door where, like, my my dad walked out and my grandfather walked in, and the first thing he said to me, "I'm six, is uh, you're the man of the house now. You need to look after your your mother and, and younger sisters." And I'm like, okay, well, how do I do that? And so, you know, I was indoctrinated by like all of those protector type shows like the Lone Ranger and Knight Rider and the A-Team where like there were these like strong men who kind of like came out of the shadows to help a family in need or a person in need. And I kept like waiting for that person to like show up in my life and they, you know, they never came. And so I wanted to become that person for others. And so I joined the army and then I worked for the government for a number of years. And then I was uh, working for a, um, a consulting firm out in Los Angeles, which is kind of like the time, the, the secret service of the private sector. And then, you know, the, the tragedy at Sandy Hook was a real turning point for me because I realized in that moment that while my particular skill set was being employed by, you know, that top 1% of the, of the marketplace, the other 99% were kind of left vulnerable. And while not all of us will ever know the luxury of having our own protective detail, every single one of us deserves to be protected. And so what I wanted to really do with my firm was, you know, help others to succeed in staying safe. And the, the book is an extension of that philosophy. I also find that, and I read this somewhere too, I mean, statistically, most people are not confrontational. They're just, they will avoid it at all costs. But what I thought was interesting that I'd like to know more about um, that you reference in your book is gut instinct versus anxiety, you know, and, and when to come out of yourself to distinguish the two and act upon it. And that's and I because I also have anxiety issues at times and there's I can't differentiate between the two 
Um, and I wonder if there's actual tools to look for to know. Well, also, when you think about true crime, right, and you watch the shows and you listen to the podcast, somebody always says, I knew in my gut that person was bad. I yeah. knew in my gut something was wrong. Mm-hmm. And they let it go. And they let it go. So what is that difference between gut instinct versus And, and I wonder if that goes back to most of society really being non-confrontational, not wanting anything to do with an awkward conversation, you know, or making someone feel on the spot. Well, so there's, there's a couple different things there. One is that I think one of the reasons true crime is so successful is because it really is exposing people to, to scenarios that they themselves don't often encounter. And so they're like kind of like learning the skill sets of how to avoid that from happening to them. So, oh, okay. So when this guy, this creepy guy, like she didn't listen to her instincts or, okay. So this kind of thing, it's almost like, like programming your mind into this like filtered forecast of an, if this, then that scenario so that you can draw from those clues should that bad thing ever happen to you. Another component is I think one of the reasons why anxiety over our inability to keep ourselves and our loved ones protected is at an all-time high is because our understanding of what it means to be protected is at an all-time low. We have sort of devolved into this uh, framework where it's like a pendulum swinging between like complacency where like nothing's going to happen to hypervigilance where we're like patting down grandma before she like enters the ballpark. When really all most of us ever need to succeed in staying safe is a healthy sense of skepticism and a moderate dose of vigilance. But, you know, it's been a millennia since we were living on the high plains and we had to like worry about the tigers in the high grass or the, you know, where, where we were the prey. Now we're the dominant species and we have such a command over our environment that there is almost this expectation of safety. And so when a security breach occurs, we're like, what is going on? Like this shouldn't be happening. And, and we kind of devolve into this, you know, hypervigilance thing. And then the cycle repeats itself. Like we see this with every school shooting, something bad happens, the politicians and the students like champion for change. Then the new cycle goes on, nothing happens. And then it happens again. And the cycle repeats. Or we put such an overemphasis on reacting to those concerns but we do nothing to prevent them as if giving the firefighters faster engines so that they can put out the fire faster will help that fire from ever starting in the first place. But it's, it's what people can do because it's tactical. It's practical. It's like they can show, Oh no, we gave this much money to this, this and that, but it's much harder to on an interpersonal level to simply help those who are hurting because the number one reason that, you know, students attack the schools and employees attack the workplace is because Typically, that's where the grievance first takes hold. The ideation that they can do something about it is first realized, where their research and planning is already known because it's part of their everyday experience, where they don't have to breach any kind of security feature because they're already supposed to be there. And so the gunshots ringing out are literally a, can you hear me now? Because they don't have the emotional intelligence to ask for help. So instead, they choose to act out in that need. And I think one of the reasons we're seeing so many violent crimes and such an increase in in mass shootings right now is because one of the unintended consequences of a year in quarantine has been this almost like an atrophy of human interaction because how we interact with one another is a perishable skill. 
And when we spent a year in our homes in quarantine, where we only learned how to interact with each other via Zoom like this, that that is just a different framework than how we would interact if we were actually in the room together. And, you know, so people's thresholds are lower, people's anxieties are higher, their tolerance is lower, but their grievances are, are through the roof. And that's, that's just a, it's a powder keg of concern that could really not be good for us down, you know, down the line if we don't start taking more of an active role in participating in our own safety. I just realized I didn't even come close to answering your question, which was about uh, anxiety and, and, well, and first uh, of all, anxiousness. Trusting, trusting your I, was, I was just thinking, <laughs> you're so funny. I was like, uh, wow, well, I just talked for five minutes and didn't come close to that answer. <laughs> I was thinking that, but that was such a compelling, also really critical, important information that we need now and is a topic that's more important. But now that you're circling back, it all goes to the same, which is what's in our gut. And and it goes also yes. to uh, flagging the things that you just discussed. But specifically, my gut will tell me something and my anxiety will tell me something else. Who do I listen to? Who's right? What's wrong about each or what's right about each? Okay. So what, where I was going with the learn with the, with the true crime thing and like learning about those bad things that happen so that if we identify them, they, we, we know what to do about it. So your gut instinct is always correct. 99.99999% of the time, there's a great book by uh, Malcolm Gladwell called Blink, which is all about like subconscious decision-making. Brilliant book. But it basically is like, you know, I think like one of the opening anecdotes is like an art historian looks at something and goes, yeah, that's fake, but has no real framework for understanding it, but then invest like hundreds of thousand dollars to prove it's fake when he already knew it was fake at the, at the onset. Um, so the difference between gut instinct, anxiousness and anxiety is your gut instinct is millions of years of evolution that have helped you keep our species alive, telling you that something is good or something is bad. Your anxiousness, it's your body preparing yourself for performance. So every athlete who takes the football field, every performer who takes a stage, every, like even me, like right before I go on a stage, like I remember even telling Kelly at Crime Pass, like you're going to see my right, my right knee start to bounce right up until my foot touches the first stair and then I'm fine. But for some reason, like as the music comes down and as the announcer is like, is cueing me to come on stage, your adrenaline spikes, your, your, your vision tightens, your, your fine motor function begins to deteriorate a little bit. Because you're actively, it's your body is preparing for performance, which is fine. And then once you get on stage, you, you're, if you're an athlete or performer or whatever, and you're performing as prescribed and you're getting the positive feedback from the audience, you, you fall into that state of flow and, you, and you're good to go. But if you were not prepared to go on stage, that anxiousness could lead into anxiety because instead of putting yourself in a position to start small and build strong and to learn those skills that can, you know, help you to adapt and overcome and evolve in whatever situation you're in, you are literally shirking, stopping yourself, cutting yourself off from the experiences that could ultimately help you down the line. Think about how much anxiety you had and how anxious you were your first time behind the wheel of a car, right? You're, you're, you're white knuckled and you're gripping and you're, 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 you're driving with two feet and you're, you're looking left and right and you're checking all the mirrors. 
And then flash forward like 10,000 hours of driving later and you're like driving with your knee while you're like updating your Instagram feed and, you know, scheduling the next conference call. Same thing if I put you into like the driver's seat of a sports car, like, and told you you had to drive around that track like 500 miles an hour. So you, you, your but, heart rate would be going through the roof. So anxiety is more feeling uh, not prepared for life or a situation or something uh, that's jolting your emotions a bit, right? Or and then yeah. and then the gut instinct is just something that you innately you know is right know. or wrong. Right, you sense it. So that happened mm-hmm. to us today, Spencer. So Melissa and I had a meeting this morning. We're driving down the highway and it all of a sudden on the highway, you know, two lanes. Well, they split the two lanes and there's Jersey barriers on either side of the left lane. I apparently was in the wrong one, needed to be in the right one because I had to get off. Well, we're in the left one and we can't see an opening anywhere. You can't. You cannot get off. You are stuck in between these Jersey barriers. Late for the meeting. Late for our meeting. And I remember my gut's going, it's got to end at some point, right? We got to be able to get out of this thing at some point. But my anxiety starts going, what if my car breaks down? What if I run out of gas? You know, and then you start to have a panic attack, right? And then you're like, wait, what if I, what if the car in front of me gets to an accident? I have to slam on my brakes. We're going to have this 20 million car pile up behind, but my, my gut's going, you're fine. You've got enough gas. Your car works perfectly fine. It's going to end at some point. And it's a matter okay. of which one wins. Here's a very important thing to understand. What you were feeling in that moment was not anxiety. What you were feeling in that moment was anxiousness because you knew how to get yourself out of it. You were just waiting for the opening to do. And then once you did, you were fine. Anxiety would be is if every time you saw a Jersey barrier, you felt that that you felt that anxiousness again. Well, I will from now on after what happened today. <laughs> no, you won't because you knew how to over you knew how to overcome that that obstacle. Whereas if you were if your if your anxiousness got to the point where it was so crippling you couldn't perform. And then you had to get rescued from that situation. Now you would have anxiety because you didn't know how to contend with that variable. Right. So you see this sometimes where people are just like walking down the street and a tree gets hit by a bolt of lightning and they weren't expecting it and they got thrown back. And now they have this anxiety about walking near trees because they think that every time they walk by a tree, it's going to get struck by lightning and they're going to get thrown back. So what, what a psychologist would, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, how would you break them out of that mindset? Immersion therapy. The more you do something, the less it has an impact on you. So when I was using that sports car reference, you may get into that sports car or that, you know, Grand Prix or that Formula One car. And when I strap you in the seatbelt and the engine rubs and you realize that all those cars are going 500 miles an hour and you just have to hit the gas and go and you can't do it. The only way for you to overcome that fear is to do it. And that first time around the track, your heart rate's probably going to be about 200 beats per minute and you're going to be sweating and your hands are going to, you know, go cold and numb. But a hundred times around that track and your heart rate's going to be at about 130, 500 times around that track. And it's going to be like you were born to do this. But so much of our anxiety is because of our in our, our in either our inability or our unwillingness to learn something new. Spencer, I want to talk about that, something. Oh, sorry. 
No, no, no. I was, uh, I, I'll what, just keep talking if you don't interrupt. <laughs> I will interrupt you. One of the things I always live by is be proactive rather than reactive. And I think that's something yes. that you can take away when it comes to your personal safety. And I mean, your personal safety, safety of your home, safety of your family. You have to be proactive rather than reactive. And there's something that you cover in your book that I think is like the holy grail of people today because I don't do this. I know people who do do this and that is oversharing, especially on social media and online. And I would love for our audience to have some sort of, you know, have as much takeaway from this conversation with you as possible. And I think that's one of the most important things that people can learn today is what they are sharing online. And I am a victim of, yes, <laughs> not a victim, but I am an overshare. <laughs> I overshare to so, strangers. <laughs> so oversharing is a very real uh, modern day concern, which if left unaddressed can have very real world consequences. It is because, because remember, you know, uh, you look at uh, human trafficking and uh, crimes mm -hmm. against minors, especially during the pandemic, those numbers went up rather than down through the roof, through the roof. Yeah. So the average person, and I, I think I use some statistics in the books, which are, are escaping the forefront of my mind at the moment, but the average person really has no idea how much personal information they share over a six month span, your date of birth, your, your mom's maiden name, your pet's name, where you went to school, the street you live on, the car you drive, your first car, your last car. Oh, here's me five years ago. And look when I used to have red hair and now I have blonde hair. Like, and while something you share may not be the reason you get targeted, everything you share will help someone who wants to target you to be more successful. So there is a big difference between you know, promoting your personal opinion or promoting your, 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 your personal brand or whatever it is. But here's the thing. It's very difficult to hack your bank account. It's very easy to hack your Fitbit. And if you're using the same username and password for your Fitbit as you are for your bank account, and you're sharing with me all of the answers to your challenge password questions through your social media feed, how hard do you think it would be for me to access your, your, your bank account? There was a, there was a, a, a thing that went around a couple of months ago about like when the, when the bit craze was going on where people were sharing every time they bought new crypto and they were sharing the wallet that they had it stored on. So then bad guys, nefarious actors started going through and hacking people's accounts trying to get into their iPhone, trying to get into their iCloud, whatever. And the number of people who had either, oh, you know what it was? They hacked Evernote. And the number of people who in Evernote had a file called password and then had all of this stuff listed and then had the, had the you know, here's my blockchain crypto wallet username password. And then these bad guys just went in, took all of their crypto and they couldn't do anything about it because of blockchain. And so, what I always recommend is to audit yourself with honesty. Every so often, you should go back through your social media and be like, is this still relevant? No, let me take it down. Because just because you posted something in the moment that was relevant doesn't mean it still has relevance three months later. 
And if that thing is going to be able to give a bad guy one more piece of information to target you or to be effective if he wanted to target you, why would you give the other team your own playbook? And Spencer, you have the best story in regards to that in your book regarding the couple that went out on a date night. Yeah. they they And you see this all the time where people are like, 10 day countdown to my vacation. Can't wait to be on a cruise for, for seven days. And by the way, here's what the front of my house looks like. And here's where I keep the spare key. And it's like, but yeah. So the example I used in that book was um, a, a husband and wife who hadn't been out for a while are literally on Instagram story providing a play-by-play of their date night while their home is being robbed. And the person who's robbing them is just basically following along on their story as a countdown clock to how much time they have left on target. Was, did the person know them? Was it related or just, okay. Yeah. So, so it's all, so I don't want to say most home robberies, but you'd be surprised how many crimes are committed by people in your orbit, whether they're personal connections or interpersonal connections, or, you know, there's, there's very rarely like a more than like three or four degrees of separation between, you know, it's, it's either someone who was working on the house and then sold that information to someone else, or it was a, a long lost friend. Who, I think in this situation, it was like a, a, an old college friend who came, who reconnected recently and then was like down on his luck and was looking to, you know, um, you know, kind of like stake himself on the, on the, uh, on the disadvantages of their, of their old friend. But yeah, we really need to take, what we do and how we do it and what we share and in the matter in which we share so much information on social media, because just as much as social media companies are using us as the product, bad guys are using us for target selection. And regardless of circumstance or scenario, the number one factor of target selection will always be likelihood of success. And so if you are basically giving someone the the playbook and the diagrams and the home shoppers guide of what they can take from you if they can successfully, you know, breach your, your safeguards. Like how can you be so upset when it actually happens? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp online therapy. Now I'm always interested in my skincare, maintaining beauty and fitness routines, and I really need to invest more in my mental health. I try to stay positive, but sometimes, you know, the universe strikes us so hard and life can be overwhelming. And, you know, Melissa, with us working in true crime, you know, we see a lot of darkness. But off the job, I try to focus on what I'm grateful for. If you could use some help in realigning your thoughts or emotions, try Better Help. It's an online therapy source. Now, you can get your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours at the time you'd like. And they offer video, phone, or even live chats, depending on your mood. And of course, if you don't vibe with your first choice of therapist, you can easily change. You know, why invest in everything else in your life and not on your mind and emotional state? And if the cost is of a concern, there's always financial aid available. Our Killer Genes listeners get 10% off their first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com slash killer genes. Join the more than 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of experienced professionals. That's betterhelp.com slash killer genes. Okay, I have a question for modern day 
singlehood. So all of the birth of these dating apps are now the biggest thing, right? There's so many. And I'm on these things and I'm thinking, and I'm a crime journalist, investigative journalist of many years. So I know how to properly vet, right? And I am a weirdo like that. I will vet someone before I even get on a phone call being single. And I will also do my due diligence to look at multiple arenas. But a lot of people don't have a public career like I do, for example, so they could see more of me than I can see of them. And um, Mm -hmm. sometimes I get so paralyzed by that fear that I don't want to date someone that I can't search them online. But how do you, what's your advice to all of the millions of people using those dating apps? Because I've had friends who have had horrific things happen when they show up to a a blind date with someone on a dating app and it's, it's bad. And what would you tell people like that in trusting and making sure they're secure in meeting a stranger from a dating app? Because they can be very dangerous, as we know. Oh, very dangerous. Yeah, a lot of these people, it, you know, they are, they're talking to the person for weeks. And it does. who are you talking to? How, I know how to vet, but how does the average person protect themselves? How does the average person not end up as a topic of our podcast? Yes. Yeah, your first, your first date should be a FaceTime date. Yes, and screen grab it, I think. Screen grab the person's yeah. face. But, but not only that, but here, you're, you're, that because you could I had a friend do that and you know, the next step was meeting in person. Turns out the name was never the guy's real name. All she had on record for police because something happened was his face. And the guys just got away with it because she had his face but not his real name. And there's always something. It's just it's not enough, you know? Right. But you can also like, I mean, I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with in today's like day and age. Like, like if you're, if you're FaceTiming someone, then that's a, that's a phone number. That's a number that's traceable and trackable, but there's nothing wrong with like talking to someone and be, and like, Hey, well, let me see your place. Let me see. Like, Oh, I see on your profile that you have your do- a dog. Where's your dog? Let me, what's your dog's name? Like there's a lot of things you, people who are putting up a front or who are putting up a facade very rarely do it at at a level where they have numerous backstops in place. It's typically they're going to like, this actually happened to me where I was out at a bar and some girl came up and like slapped me across the face because some guy had taken one of my old MySpace photos, put himself, put my face on a J date profile and was like passing himself off as a plastic surgeon, giving free consults to women on dating apps. And so like, like it was going by like, like Dr. Carver or something. And I literally had to go That's to my, my, like, my friend who's a bartender and be like, like, what is my name? He's like, Spencer. I was like, see, and like, what do you do? He's like, you work for the state department. He's like, I was like, yeah, see, I'm not a plastic surgeon, not me. And we literally had to like, like show, like, like reach out to them and show like copies of my credentials and like get, get that profile taken down. But that's not someone who like went through the due diligence of like really putting like a quote unquote cover in place. So, and you will know there's, there's, there's a way someone communicates via text and there's a way someone communicates verbally. That's just different, but it's still the same person. And you can tell if someone who communicates in writing is not the same person that you're talking to, you know, face to face, but you'll also be able to get like, we're, we're not biologically in tune to assess personality via text. We are ultimately three dimensional beings. We need to like look, see and feel our counterpart. But if we can't do that, at least we can do it through a 2D medium where I can tell, 
you know, that something's just not right about you or yeah, you're saying all the right things like in text, but like, I can tell that like you're being shifty or you're being shady or like, why is the, the background blurred out or like, and, and if any of those like red flags should ping to you when you're having that initial interaction, then there's absolutely zero reason to continue. Like the, the, you, you will not meet the right guy by spending more time with the wrong one. So as soon as like what we were talking about gut instinct earlier, as if you have any doubt, there is none and don't negotiate against your better instincts because you want there to be something that there's not. Don't fall into this like safety trap of the lifetime movie where the asshole turns out to be a prince. Okay. No, the asshole's an asshole. If he's an asshole to you. He's going to be an asshole to everyone else. Like he's not going to all of a sudden see the light in your eyes and realize that he was, you know, supposed to be the next Ryan Gosling. So you know, there are a lot of things that, and listen, and women are the most innate creatures of our species. So listen, there, there's not a woman alive that, uh, that will let a guy get away with a lie unless she wants to believe it. So I also just want to give a little tip for listeners supposed cause it's mainly, you know, mm-hmm. well, a lot of women, uh, you know, whitepages.com, you know, Oh it's, yeah, it's two ninety nine, and you can do a little quick search and see if the person is There's who they say been they are. Verified. There's all yeah. sorts of there uh, are databases out there. Out there. Like, like no one's going to be on a dating app but not have a social media profile. Well, right. no, there's like, a, no there, one's going to. There's a lot. There is a lot, and that makes me feel weird. I, then I always they're, bypass then they're that. married. <laughs> there you go. That's <laughs> okay. Like if you're on Raya, you have an Instagram. Well, yeah, right, right. 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 If you're on, if you're on Bumble, you have a Facebook. Right. If you're on, you know what I mean? So, because they're all tied, they're all owned by the same, the same, you know, overarching empire control, you know, uh, so look out for the ones that say they don't have social media. Correct. Yes. Yeah. They don't have a social media. They want to share. Yes, exactly. (laughs) No, they have a joint face account, Facebook account with their wife. That's what it is. Right. Yeah, well, that's a red flag. I love when on Monday morning you see. I just want to give a shout out to the to the best guy in my life who's always was like, "Up, oh, someone cheated this weekend." <laughs> Have you ever been hired as oh, as a private investigator for things like that, or what's what's the oh, yeah. scope? Oh, you have. Wow. Oh yeah, all the time. Wow, Spencer. You know, I think a lot of people live under this sheep's clothing of, I got a ring doorbell camera. I'm okay. I got a security. I've got the nest. I've got the, this and that I'm okay. What do you think then is the next best thing that somebody can do that expands their circle of safety? And I know you probably can't pick one thing, but if you had to give any piece of advice for listeners right now, what would it be? So I will, so this, the whole thing with like residential security comes up all the time. And I can't remember if I put this in the book or not, but I used to do this thing where I would um, go up to someone in like a parking lot and be like, Hey, how secure is your home? They'd be like, Oh, it's totally secure. I'm like, okay, great. You know, they're promoting a protective posture. They, they think they locked their front door. And so they're going to tell me that their home is secure. And then I'll say, okay, there is a million dollars in a backpack in the upstairs bedroom. If we give you 20 minutes to get in and out, grab that money and, you know, get out without anyone being the wiser, could you do it? And they go, yes. So what changed in that five seconds? Well, what changed was they went from thinking like a homeowner to thinking like a bad guy. Because now they're thinking, oh, well, you know, uh, the kids never shut the garage door when they come back from soccer practice or 
you know, my wife hates it when I stink up the guest bathroom. So she always like, you know, cracks that, that, that window open. So I could probably sneak in that way. Or, you know, the, the first floor doors and windows are all probably locked, but we never lock like the deck. So I could, if I can just jungle gym my way up there, I can get in and out pretty quickly. And all of those ways that you would break into your house are the same way that a bad guy is going to break into your house. Because if they know a way to get in that will allow them to do so without being detected, they're going to circumvent those defenses. And I can't tell you how many home invasions occur simply because the front door was unlocked. Like 90% of, of security, of breaches to security aren't because they didn't have the right things in place. It was because the right things that they had in place were being underutilized. The cat, the ring camera is there, but it doesn't have a battery in it or the ring camera is there and it has a battery, but it's not connected to the app or the security alarm is, is on, but it's, or is there, but it's not turned on or the door is shut, but it's not locked or, you know, we have the motion lights, but the bulb is bad. There, there's a million factors that, that fall into place. And so the one thing that everyone can really just do is audit yourself with honesty. Have a friend say, hey, where do you think I'm the most vulnerable? Identify the most realistic risks that you are most likely to face and then put the safeguards into place to keep those risks from becoming a reality. What, what's not going to happen is Tom Cruise repelling from a helicopter in some kind of like super ninja spy rig to tunnel through your chimney to get your TV. What's going to happen is someone's going to walk up to your front door, knock, you don't answer. They're going to go around to the back door and then they're going to kick it in and they're going to make sure they can get through it once because if your neighbor hears a loud thing once, they don't think twice. Only if they hear a loud thing twice, will they give it any attention. And then what that guy's going to do is just a high and plain sight. He's going to smack your TV and he's going to walk right up the front door because only bad guys sneak around the side. Audit yourself with honesty. I love that. Spencer, thank you so much. We Honestly, we could talk to you for hours. Yeah. It's so good. And, and it, we could have gone through every single chapter yeah. of your book. But, but I highly recommend people pick it up. The Safety Trap. Very, where can people yeah. get it from, Spencer? Uh, it is now available wherever your favorite books are sold. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also did the audio book as well. It's nice. available on uh, hardcover ebook and audio or if you want to learn more about the stories and anecdotes and behind the scenes you can go to the safetytrap.com that's the safetytrap.com to learn more about me the blog the podcast the book all things safety <laughs> awesome spencer thank you so much thank you thank you thanks everyone for listening follow killer jeans on facebook and on instagram it's at killer jeans the podcast also, be sure to like and subscribe to Killer Jeans on Podcast One, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts.